Welcome to the John Papaloni Show. This episode, I am interviewing Chad Griffiths. And uh, this one's going to be very special because, as you know, um, when it comes to commercial realty, I am a real estate. I'm, let's just say, very weak on it. So Chad is uh, a specialist in it. He's a partner with a brokerage, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let him tell you what he does. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, John. I'm excited to be here. Me as well. I mean, like, it's one of those things that in Ontario, we're, um, we have to know basics for commercial to get our license, but reality is the kind of stuff we learn, we really shouldn't be practicing it. Put it that way. We should really get a mentor if we wanted to get into commercial. So yeah, yeah and that, that's a really good point, John. And it's, it's the same for me where I wouldn't attempt to do residential just because I don't think I'd be working in the best interest of the client. I just don't know that market nearly as well as people like you who do it all the time. You live and breathe it. Uh, I, that's what I do with industrial real estate is I live and breathe industrial real estate. It's pretty much uh, what I do from the moment I wake up uh, till I send the last email before I go to bed. I live, breathe and sleep industrial real estate. Yeah. So you're like me. I like when I get into something, I'm all in. Right. Like there's no backup. There's no what ifs. There's no side hustle. It's I'm all in. That's what I do. That's who I am. That's what I'm about. Yeah. There's that, that saying you cross the Rubicon, right? Do you burn the ship? So there's no going back now. It's uh, we're we're all in. I'm I'm the exact same way as you, John. Yeah, exactly. Like I believe if you believe in yourself and you're really truly committed, you'll, you'll make it work. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's important to find something that you love doing. And then if you have some skill at doing it and you can make a good living at it, I mean, that's the best way to have a career, something that you love doing and that you're good at doing it. I mean, how blessed are we that we found something that, that strikes those two boxes. For sure. And everything's about growth. And that's what I like about the industry. There's plenty of opportunity to grow. Like I'm a single agent now and I'm building a team. Now, obviously, I'm going to start off with an admin, and I got a video guy that follows me. So uh, between the two, I'm building there. Now, as that, you know, gets filled up and I start, you know, building to the next level, then I'll get into a buyer's agent, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like so, but you have to start somewhere. There's opportunity for growth, and it's all on you to do it, which is the best opportunity. You're not waiting for permission from a boss. Absolutely. That's the joy of being an entrepreneur and and being in real estate. We are entrepreneurs. I I love the fact that you've got a video guy that follows you around because not many people think about that. Like they're, they're trying to look at things from like the old school way of doing business. And 20 years ago, it would would have been unfathomable to have a video guy following you around. Right. Uh, But I think you're one of those forward thinking agents that, that wants to showcase what you're doing, get the behind the scenes thing, show people how, how you're doing it and and showing them the properties in the process. I think that's a great idea. So kudos to you for, uh, for implementing that onto your team. Thank you. Cause yeah, like it's, we are definitely in an era of content is king. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, I believe our future is changing like right now, video is top, but I believe our future is going to be more audio than video. And I'll give you an example. Look, we have Google. Um, I forgot what it is. Not Chrome. Google something, right? We have Alexa. Yep. We have Apple with their Siri. I mean, we're, we're, we're shopping right now with our computers and looking up and watching YouTube videos to learn about it. Someone's going to say, Alexa, find me a house. Alexa, find me a car. Alexa, I want a Toyota. Alexa, I need to get, uh, I need to get an oil change on my car. So if you're uh, not dominating the audio, whoever's dominating is going to be the one that is going to pick. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And and you're right, even just on podcasts, like I uh, five years ago, I never listened to podcasts at all. And now I do all the time. I, I listen to audiobooks. I I think you're onto something there. That the audio is gonna be key. Absolutely. And like I'm not saying video and anything else is going away, like everything else, right? Like as we progress, once upon a time, Instagram was all pictures. Now mm -hmm. pictures are hardly seen and videos are put on priority. But it doesn't mean mm -hmm. pictures disappeared. We started off with blogging. You know, people barely even knew what a blog was. And now look how far we've come. But blogs do exist. People still read. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I, I'd say I'm a consumer of all types of content. I, I like to read, I like to look at uh, videos, and I like to listen to audio. So I, I think if you're in the realm where you're trying to touch people however they like to absorb content, I think that's probably a, a good proactive strategy to have. Exactly. And I'm even uh, answering what you said about the uh, progressive thinking versus old school. Like, look, I mean, like some of the old school tactics still work, but you're putting in three, four times the effort than you used to. Like, yeah, I, I always have thought that all the social media stuff that, that I've done myself is kind of supplementing what what else I do. Because I, I still do uh, cold prospecting and still try to drum up business from scratch. So I still do that. But I use social media basically not to substitute that stuff, but to complement it more than anything. Yes, I agree with you. 100% there, right? So it's and also you got to look at what what is your strengths, right? Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that I think we all have um, different strengths and um, different opportunities that we have to learn where, that we, you know, to hone in on. And, and you have to decide, and I'll give you an example. Like um, one of those things, like you can be a networker, right? Mm -hmm. Which a networker is somebody who's out there who likes to do things in person Mm -hmm. Right. And, and to be honest, that's one of my strengths. I'm a network person. You put me in front of somebody nine out of 10 times done deal. Right. That's just my strength. I, I love talking to people in person. I friggin' hate the phone. I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, I answer because we're in the business that we answer, but I really want to be one of like one of the millennials, just pick it up, stare at it and go, Wee, it's ringing. Look at the lights. You know, like I can't stand it. Right. Yep. But again, we're in the industry where we rely on the phone. So no choice, but, um, if you give me the choice, meet up or talk on the phone, you know which one I want to do. Oh, I'm the same with you on that, John, 100%. Right? I go out. I go out to restaurants, and I talk to I talk to everybody that will talk to me. I mean, I you know what I mean? Like, even with the waitress. You mm -hmm. know that when the bill comes, I have a talk. I always end up in a conversation of real estate, and I end up passing out my card. Hmm. Right? Just a networker. I'm in, in person. Now you have also the prospector and the prospector is the old school type of person who loves the door knock, cold call. Um, they're self-starters. They're a traditional salesperson. Um, they just love the hunt and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Like it's, you know, cold call, door knock, cold call, door knock, you know, like anything to get yourself out there. Again, if that is your strength, that's cool, but not everybody has that. Then there's what's also called the converter, right? They use systems and tools. You know, they're uh, technology heavy. Um, online lead generation from websites, that's a strong thing. Landing pages. But again, those are one of those things you get 100 leads, one or two are convertible, and you got to work all 100 to figure out which two are convertible. That's not my strength. Not that I haven't done it. I've converted from websites, but it's not my strength. Marketer, yep. this is my strength, and this is the kind of thing we're talking about, where, you know, personal branding is a focus, and that's the whole point of social, is to build your personal brand, engage with people, interact with people, um, you know, love being on video, 
I mean, that's the other thing we're on podcast. That's all this is what, what a marketer is. And that's me. That's what I'm good at. That's what I enjoy. And I could do it all day long. Yep. So, and you don't feel tired at the end of the day after you're doing it because it's something that you you're good at and you enjoy. Exactly. So it's a matter of knowing your strengths and knowing what you what, what works best for you. Yep. I mean, I, I believe I'm one of those things that I figure out your top two strengths and become the best at it and then just forget the rest. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my, my that's a great idea. So, but anyways, going into your story, why don't you give us a history of where you started and, and where you're at now? Yeah. So I joined the industry in 2005, uh, commercial real estate. Uh, I, I thought I was going to be getting into commercial real estate and selling office buildings or perhaps working in shopping centers. But the office that I ended up joining was heavy and industrial. And it just so happened that all the seasoned guys there were were involved in industrial and that's what their focus was so almost accidentally i i got into industrial real estate uh, and that was 16 17 years ago now uh and, and i'm really glad that i did because it's been it's been a very rewarding career and much like you it's it's something that i just i'm passionate about i love talking about industrial real estate i go out of my way uh if anyone has a question i try to answer everybody who has a question uh and, and it's just something that i love talking about so I, i've been very fortunate to have spent my career at the same brokerage working in industrial real estate well that's pretty awesome like did you know you were going to get into real estate growing up or did you have something else in mind no not not really I, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit like I was that kid selling hockey cards when I was 12 years old on this on the side of a road trying to sell hockey cards to people that drove by I, I raked people's lawns I shoveled snow I I had that entrepreneurial itch from a very young age so I knew I always wanted to do business uh, I went to school for business uh, so I just I had that idea that I wanted to do something uh, when I was, when I actually dropped out of college, uh, the first go around and took a job managing a restaurant. And when I was doing that, a few friends of mine and I, uh, started buying and selling houses. So that's, that was kind of the, the entrance into, into real estate. And, and I thought this is, this could be tough to have a sustainable career, just buying and selling houses. So I thought I could supplement that by getting a little bit of revenue, uh, and, easy way to do that was to become an agent. So kind of, it was a long winding road to get there. Uh, but, but I'm very glad that I, that I did because, uh, even though I didn't have plans to be in real estate per se, I always wanted to be a business owner. And that, that guy who, who had to make something from nothing and you could build something over time that was bigger than you were. Uh, and real estate has done that not just for myself personally as being kind of like that sole entrepreneur but i'm also a partner at, at my uh, brokerage now as well so i i've kind of achieved that goal of being an entrepreneur just in a very roundabout way of doing it right well you know what i was gonna okay you gave me two questions here i'm gonna ask both questions because by the time you answer them i'll forget it and <laughs> so i'll just let you know what they are and let you answer it like one i want you to get into how did you become partner and the second thing is you, you mentioned something interesting because you got into real estate, you know, because you were trying to uh, buy and sell homes, right? So that kind of residential. So that, that, that's sort of like interesting because most people go through the residential side like that. Mm-hmm. You'd figure you want to get into housing and you want to get into real estate to benefit that business on top of making side income from sales. But you went completely different right into industrial. How well, did you bypass that? Yeah, sort of. I, so I, I got into industrial real estate in 2005, uh, even a little bit more 
back uh, to, of the story and we could go back another year, I actually did get my start in residential. So I got into residential in 2004. It was when I got my license. And while I did reasonably well in residential, I just, I didn't like the prospect of doing that for the rest of my career. Some people love it. I'm sure you love it. Uh, I still have a number of friends that do it and they love it. I just, I didn't, it was, I wasn't excited about it. I didn't wake up every day and just feel that zest to, to, to get started. So that's why I, I did it less than a year, moved over to uh, industrial real estate right after. So I, I did technically get my start in residential, but it was a very, very short term that I, that I spent in there. Uh, and then being uh, at, at the company that I'm at now, I, I was there for, I became a partner in 2014, I believe. So I was there for nine years. And our company actually goes back to 1966. It, it's it's been owned by uh, a number of different people over the years, but it dates back to 1966. The founder of our company actually just retired about five years ago, uh, so he was he was up there in in mileage. Uh, and so it's been a, a long-standing brokerage, uh, and I was honored just to be invited to 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 join in. I originally bought in at a small percentage. Uh, and then over the last couple of years, I've become uh, a significant shareholder there. So it was partly just staying at the same company, being loyal to them, uh, being a producer, you've got to make money in this business to, to keep the lights on. Uh, so it's partly just loyalty, hard work, uh, production, uh, and just being at the right place at the right time. Well, that's the interesting part, right? Because normally when you join a brokerage, like you don't have that opportunity. It's like, nope. you want to own a brokerage, well, leave where you are and start your own. Mm -hmm. If you can afford to do that. And that's usually the option. Like it's very rare that you actually have that opportunity. So I'm just intrigued that that was that, that, that opportunity came to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause that's unheard of. Yeah. And commercial brokerages are a little bit of a different model as well. There, there's typically two types of commercial brokerages. They're either going to be uh, owned by a local group of partners, or they're going to be a large publicly traded company. And good examples of that, uh, names that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, like CBRE, JLL, Colliers, these are publicly traded companies. So they're corporately owned. Uh, so there's no opportunity to be partners in those other than you could buy share as a shareholder in them. But the smaller local offices, whether they are part of a bigger brand and they just pay a franchise fee, which is what our company does, or they're just a standalone office that perhaps only has one office total, those are typically going to be partner owned. And quite often the succession plan in these is to bring in the next generation of people as opposed to, I, th I think the residential side from the limited knowledge I have on it is a lot of times when the owner, uh, it's usually the broker owner uh, decides that he wants to sell, he just sells it in the open market to whoever wants to buy it uh, instead of grooming that next generation of partners to come up and try and make it like a, a collaborative group led initiative. It usually seems to be owned by one person. At, at least that's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. That is a common part too, as well. Yeah. That's brings up the next part, right? You chose to go more of that local independent mm -hmm. over like a CBRE. What made you go that direction versus going, you know, for the big box name? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And it's something that I've 
I've second guessed my decision to do that numerous times along my career, because I think that there is the appeal of working for the the big brokerages because they typically get a lot of mandate work. So if it's a, if it's a large company like Amazon is, is an example, if they decide that they're going to open 2 million square feet in a market, they probably have a mandate with one of the big brokerages uh, to be, to work exclusively with them. So it, it is attractive from the standpoint that the big companies the big brokerages typically work with big companies, but where I've found benefit myself with the company that I've been at is that I, I get to know my clients a lot better because instead of dealing with some corporate executive, uh, most often I'm dealing with the owner of the company uh, or, or the president of the company, uh, just because I deal with on, on average, small and medium companies, based in my city. So I get to know these people uh, quite well, as opposed to just talking to an account rep or talking to somebody uh, uh, on the director level who could change over all the time. And you're just, you're basically given instructions. I really get to build a relationship with, with the clients that I work with and, and get to know them, get to know their families, get to know what makes them makes them tick and what 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 I could do to help make their business better. I think that that's been very rewarding just to see their growth and see how I've played a small part in that. So I, I've, I've gone back and forth. I think there's pros and cons uh, to being at a big brokerage. And I think there's pros and cons to uh, what I'm doing. Looking back on it, I'm I'm still glad that I made this 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 decision because it's it's afforded me a very comfortable life. And most importantly, I just really enjoy what I'm doing. So I'm grateful that I did, but certainly pros and cons. For sure. And that's the thing, right? You looked beyond the sale. When mm -hmm. you're with the big brokerage, you pretty much get your sailing off you go. Great point. Yep. Yeah. So like that that's good to hear. Now, what was your most challenging time when you got into the business? Uh, I would say getting started was was really tough. And, and I tell this to young commercial brokers now is that they need to be prepared for minimum two to three years of making a lot less money than they want to. And I was fortunate that I had some money saved over from uh, the, the year that I did residential and then also buying and selling some houses. I had some money in the bank. So I was able to draw on those reserves as I, because I didn't make very much money in the first few years. Uh, so I was, I was fortunate to be in that position, but it's, it's harder for some people that don't have that uh, luxury of having some money in the bank uh, or having very low expenses uh, you can think of somebody perhaps considering getting into this business that has a stay-at-home wife and two kids, how much more challenging that would be to have very limited revenue. And I, I was no different other than the fact that I didn't have a wife and two kids at the time. I do now, uh, but I can't even imagine starting right now just because it, it was painful. You just, you don't know the market as well. You don't know, you don't know who all the players are. You, you, you don't have a good understanding of trends on who's moving into the market, what deals are getting done. You, you don't have a good client base. It is really tough to get started uh, in, in commercial real estate. And I, I've, I've kind of described it to people that if you can be prepared to be underpaid for five years commensurate to the amount of work you think you're putting in you'll probably spend the next five years being paid on par with the, the effort that you put in followed by you might even be overpaid for the work that you're doing for the rest of your career if you can put those first 10 years into really really working uh, I, I think that that's that's a fair way of describing an, an average trajectory in this business but getting started was tough for sure now that's the thing right like and that's kind of the same with residential to a point, mm -hmm. to a point. I think residential has an easier time to get in front of a market because everybody needs a home. Yep. 
but it is still difficult. A lot of times the image uh, is that people think that we just go to school, get our license, lease a BMW, and get on the road and uh, start planning our vacations. Yep. When obviously, whether you're in residential or commercial, that is just not the truth. In yeah, fact, no, no, not at all. I, I, I don't think I took a holiday for the first, first three or four years easily. No, exactly. Work-life balance is sort of the, you got, you get to go home when you're done. That's the balance. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the balance. Yeah. Or you could go home permanently and just not have a job anymore. Yeah. That's so true. I like, and again, like, so I found that an interesting perspective because you're right. Like it's, you guys have less, not less. I don't, I want, I don't want to say less people. That's the wrong way, but it's a very specific market. Yeah, no, that's a great point because you're right. When I first started, I thought I had some connections that either as friends of mine that had parents that had that owned businesses or they were high up in a company or I had some friends that were trying to start businesses and I thought I'd be able to draw on that to some extent and none of it, none of it came to fruition. Uh, years later, I, I've, I've done a number of transactions with friends now, but when I first started, when I could have really used that that support to have a few deals done none of it actually happened and the first two or three years every deal that i did was initiating it from from scratch so it, yeah it, whereas in residential if you get into it you might have a friend that's looking to buy or sell a house and and you could you could might be able to draw on that a lot easier in commercial it didn't work out at least for me anyways how how i hoped it would have makes sense and yeah like in terms of uh okay so you're building and on top of that like when you're like when you start meeting people and stuff and when you're new did that hinder any of your uh like did that how did that help you or hurt you being new like did it because you know what when you're in residential i'll give you an example when you meet somebody and you're new you can often use the brokerage stats uh like uh, to uh help boost your uh, the, the clientele's confidence yep now i think with the uh i don't think commercial is the same it to some extent it isn't I, I would i started when i was 25 that's when i got licensed uh, uh and i looked much younger than i even do right now so you could imagine how tough it is trying to get somebody to make a large decision either on a lease basis or a purchase basis when you're young and you're brand brand new to the business i just tried getting ahead of it early so i just try to identify that as a as a concern that they might have and just say hey you know what i'm i'm new into this into this business but one advantage that i'll have over my competitors is that i'm going to run much faster so if they stop if they stop running at 4:30 uh, to go home i'll work until midnight i'll work at i'll work at 3 in the morning if you need something i'm your guy because i will run until i cross that finish line and I, that's that's what i bring to the table is a pure hustle to do whatever i have to to win your business and some people it resonated with and some people were like i'd rather have the experience and to that i i, I can't overcome that. That, that that was something at the time i just didn't have and i didn't want to i didn't want to uh, be an imposter on that so instead i just relied on the fact that i'm just going to outwork everybody uh and, and i and i did i i did outwork everybody when when people were in the summer were golfing on a on a beautiful day i was in the office working uh and that was just my mentality is i'm just going to outwork people I'll, I'll let people know at the beginning this you know especially the first 
10, 15 deals that I did. Uh, that's what I said to every one of them. And it got a little bit easier because if somebody brought it up and they're like, oh, you, you must be pretty new into this business. After the first year or so, I was able to say, yeah, you know, I've actually been doing this for a year though now and I've already helped out X amount of clients and here's some success that I've had. If you want to talk to any of them, I, I think that they all had a pretty good experience. I'm sure they'd give me a recommendation. And then that that was like the next chapter that I would use to to try and, and push that that narrative forward uh and, and now I, I i don't have to answer any of those questions uh because i've i've earned it I, at least in my mind maybe people still think that uh that i need to to sell them on why to use me but i think at least in my mind I, i've i've earned it but you're right it, it 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 changes as you start progressing through the business and i think that that's that's likely in in every industry i'm, I'm sure young doctors get the same question of well, are you doogie hauser like is your <laughs> is your is your supervisor going to come in and actually oversee this as well or young accountants young lawyers i i think every industry gets this so i don't think it's unique just to to real estate but it is something that i i think you can get ahead of as opposed to letting letting their worries and their concerns because every business owner or or buyer they all have their own worries and concerns as well and they're just trying to do the best thing that they can with the information that they have and if you leave that unanswered early in that process then you're just let, leaving them to their own devices so i i just always try to get ahead, ahead of that as, as early as i could makes sense now i'm gonna say with commercial like for example residential uh the buy and sell is obviously the golden ticket, which is what everybody wants. The lease really, it's one of those things that you do it as a service, but many residential realtors don't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, reality is by the time the uh, brokerage gets paid, by the time you pay all your fees, your, your advertising and everything, like there's nothing really left. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, for example, you take a lease for 2000 bucks, you get a half month's rent. Right. So it's like you get a whole whopping 1000 bucks take the brokerage fee out, take the cost of gas to do everything and all that. And taxes, we end up like three, 400 bucks and we killed our car to do it. Yep. Um, so a lot of times, a lot of residential realtors will do it as a service, but typically don't want it. But I believe with commercial, there's probably, I'm, I'm willing to bet there's probably more leases in commercial than there is uh, purchases and sales. Um, and I'm also going to guess that the leases are uh, a little bit more lucrative. Yeah, you're you're spot on with that, and it really just is a function of the amount of, of the deal, right? Like we we are for the most part of, of every market that I'm aware of, we're paid a commission. So your commission of doing if you lease a house out and your and the rent is two thousand dollars a month, and you do a one year lease. Uh, and like you said, maybe you get half a month on that. You're, it's a thousand dollars. That's just a function of the amount of rent that that tenant's paying. But put put compare that to an industrial property where you might be doing a fifty thousand square foot lease, and you're doing it over ten years. Now take that uh, that same call it fifty thousand square feet at ten dollars a square foot. So you're five hundred thousand dollars a year. You could be looking at a $5 million lease and it's typically staggered. We'll typically see one percentage that we get paid on the first five years and another percentage on the, on the next five years, but it's not uncommon for leasing commissions in, in office retail or industrial to get minimum 10, $15,000 all the way up to, I heard of a guy actually who leased a large, large industrial property and his fee was 1.5 million for one lease deal. 
so it's there's the full spectrum uh because there's the full spectrum of size and there's a full spectrum of how good of a quality of the property is how long of a lease it is who the tenant that goes in there so whereas residential you're kind of capped by the amount of rent that's being paid like even if you leased a five thousand square foot house it's probably still only for a year and there's probably still a ceiling on what that fee is going to be whereas in commercial real estate you can lease a two million square foot building and, and get paid a very very handsome fee makes total sense now obviously we've all gone through a pandemic mm -hmm. and clearly when we first closed down i'm willing to bet that everybody went oh crap mm -hmm. <laughs> how has it uh, affected you after the old crap phase <laughs> yeah, yeah and you're so right on that i remember i was actually out for a drink with a couple of my friends i think it was march 15th if i'm not mistaken so we were out having a couple of drinks and it was starting to get worrisome at that point already like we were already being a little bit distant from each other but then up on the tv came that the nba canceled the season uh and then the next morning the nhl canceled the season and it it turned into a ghost town uh for the rest of march going into um april it was really really distressing uh and and i own a few properties myself and it was just going through my head on how are tenants going to be able to pay rent right now nobody's doing anything there's no revenue coming in everybody's sitting on the sidelines i was worried as a agent myself nobody's going to be doing any deals for the foreseeable future i was worried as a partner at my office how are agents going to do deals so we can we can keep paying the bills of our office i was concerned uh like at one point i even went and just took out a bunch of us cash and put it in my safe just thinking i don't know how bad this is going to get like i was really chicken little i thought i thought the world was falling uh and then i i just my whole mentality was well let's just keep taking this one day at a time uh we can't do anything until until the the hammer falls anyways so let's just keep working but it was really really quiet for probably three months where there was very little activity at all but during that time the government's a step forward and announced that they would print money uh seemingly at an endless pace uh banks started deferring payments uh for everyone uh there was a ton of government programs that came out and people started getting a lot more comfortable with the fact that there was this art this imaginary safety net that was going to somehow save the economy and to to a large extent it has uh the the past uh we're in late september right now the past yeah. 13 months or so have actually been really good in the industrial space because e-commerce has taken off. So a lot of people are ordering online and having it delivered. That's been growing already, but uh, uh, this COVID situation exacerbated it and made it even more of a challenge for traditional retailers. So warehouse spaces had to grow to accommodate all this e-commerce growth. Uh, manufacturing is still going high. I, I don't know about you, John, but like I, I still, my family still buys a ton of stuff. So this stuff all has to be made somewhere. So from that standpoint, uh, it's going up. Oil is uh, $75 a barrel right now. So oil is starting to prop up the manufacturing side of, of industrial real estate. So we've actually had a really, really good run uh, in industrial real estate. And from everything that I've read, and I, and I, I try to read uh, a few articles every day on, on not just my market, but the global market to get some context on it. Everything that I'm reading, I just read a report yesterday, they're, they're still thinking that the, there's going to be growth in industrial real estate all the way through to 2026. 
Makes total sense. And see, you said another key thing there. You read every day and you read about your industry. So Mm -hmm. it's not even just getting your license and saying, I'm here. You're always updating. You're always making sure you're on top of it. And I think the best agents out there know what's happening because they're always in tune with the market, not just waiting for the business to come to them. Fantastic point. And, and you're right. I, I, I think that myself all the time, I'm very cognizant of this is that you learn, you learn enough to get into the business so that you can meet the, the, the bar of your, to get the, to get your license, but that's just day one. Like this is an ongoing a journey where we constantly need to be staying on top of market trends, anything that can impact the, the econo- economy, either on a macro or a micro scale. So I'm a big believer that, that you, if you are in this business, you can never stop learning. 100%. Now I even think in terms of um, like you, you, you touched a point that I was thinking about myself, which is in terms of retail spaces. Mm-hmm. I believe like I've thought this and I thought this, believe it or not, prior to COVID, which uh, I believe that retail is going to change dramatically. I don't think it's ever going to disappear like the naysayers will say. I mean, I think there's always going to be some form of retail. I don't think it'll look like it did prior to COVID. In fact, it's already not looking like it did prior to COVID. Um, I think my what I think is going to be retail spaces are going to become more showrooms that you order and get it shipped to you. Or you pre-order and pick it up there. Mm-hmm. That's where I see it going. Yeah, um, and and the the best way I've had this had this described to me is by a, a guy that owns a lot of retail, uh, and he said the the best thing way you could look at the retail industry is that there's good retail and there's bad retail, and the good retail is all the essential the essential goods, right? Like supermarkets. I, I, I don't see supermarkets going out of business, even though you now are able to order stuff and have it delivered. So I think a lot of people still just enjoy going to the grocery store and, and seeing what they're buying. So I don't see that like a lot of those essential uh, goods. I don't see that retail going, but to your point, I, there, there is going to be some challenges in that non-essential retail space where you're right. I mean, a lot of people are just going to transition to ordering it online. And I, I, I think I'm not a retail expert by any means, but I think what's going to happen is that there's always going to be some demand for retail because you and I talked about this earlier as well is that we just, we enjoy going out to restaurants or uh, going out to, and doing things and, and meeting people and being around people and that energy that comes with it. There's always going to be some human desire to have that. But what I think is going to be the biggest impediment in retail, again, this is just my thoughts. I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but I think retail is going to stop growing. And you and I both know that when, when a business or an industry as a whole stops growing, it starts dying. And and there will be some transformation in that for no other reason than I can't see how retail grows from here. I just, I just can't, I, I don't, we're, especially in market, it's like the States where they have so much retail per capita uh, that there's no room for any growth. So the only way to go is to go down and it'll just be interesting to see what companies adapt, which ones uh, try to maneuver, which ones become so uh, customer centric that Everything's about the customer as instead instead of about being about the company. Uh, I, I think we're we're probably in for some sort of transformation in the next five to ten years though in the retail sector. For sure. Like I'm not sure if you guys have Best Buy where you are. We do. Yep. Okay. So uh, one thing I noticed, and I noticed this um, 
actually, I actually started noticing this, I would say the fall before COVID became a thing, but it got ramped up once uh, COVID came around. Where I go to the store, I'll, I'll look at something. They have some things in stock, but the majority of things I pick, like you just pick there and it's just like, it's just a display model. Mm-hmm. And then um, you order it and you can actually order it from the thing, you know, from a computer inside the store if you didn't want to go to the cash and they'll sh- ship it to you. So that little model I gave you where it's like, I mean, more of a showroom, I'm already seeing it at a small level. Mm-hmm. And so, and look at the effect that that's going to have on those two distinct asset classes on the retail side. That will mean that these companies are able to shrink their footprint because they're not going to need to hold all that stuff on site. But on the other end, on the industrial side, all that stuff is going to be have to held in a warehouse. So that that's where I'm I'm still quite bullish on the industrial side for the for foreseeable future because it, they're they're going to be the benefactors of what's happening in the retail space. One hundred percent, and that's where I was going to. I think the big ticket item is going to be warehousing. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Amazon, I heard this. I don't know if they've implemented it, but I heard this, that they're going to even take some of the retail locations of the ones that have the big box stores that do go under and use them as uh, pickup stations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's an initiative that they're they're trying in the States to see proof of concept on whether it'll work or not. I, I, I don't know of any in Canada that that's happened yet, but perhaps it has. Uh, but yeah, I, I have heard that they're, trying to do that in the states what an interesting model hey is that amazon came in and cannibalized all of these sales of these big department stores only to turn around and then lease the space that they had to leave how crazy is that hey (laughs) i know tell me about it it's like i just wow it blows me away right like but again it goes to show you how you have to adapt to things in life it, nothing stays the same. There's a saying, you're either growing or you're dying, mm-hmm. but you're never the same. Yep, I agree. I completely agree. And yeah, so that, that that's great to hear. You know, like, uh, and and look, even I was, um, I'm not going to say I never did online shopping because I did, but uh, online shopping was a very, very small portion of my shopping mm-hmm. where uh, once the pandemic started, I mean, our stores are open. We can go as long as we wear the damn stupid masks. We mm-hmm. can go. But I still order online a lot. Like it became to I'll go and look to I don't want to go. I'll order yeah. online and then um, I still go to the malls, but I'm more browsing and looking. And if I like something, I just, again, or I order it through the phone, have it delivered. Why would I load it up in my car and bring it home and carry it? And you know what I mean? Like it's just become convenient now. Yeah, and that speaks to a really good point because uh, in in at the very base of what Amazon is doing, there's not a whole lot magical there. They use, Sears used to do it, right? They'd send everybody a catalog. People could go in and flip through. They'd find out what they want. Mail order delivery. They'd get it in six to eight weeks. Amazon is essentially a, just a modernized version of the Sears catalog. But what they've been what they've been effective at doing is they've got the world's biggest catalog because they've got everything you could imagine in their catalog, and then they can also ship it in a day. Which, from a convenience factor, if you're a consumer, everyone just wants more time. They want things faster. They want it immediately. So if you can get something, you can order exactly what you want. You know the exact thing that you want, and you can have it be delivered to your house the next day. That's just a convenience factor that that shopping centers have a, are going to have a very hard time competing with. You're right, and um, I'll even there's certain things though that I would not buy online, no matter how much someone says you can. 
Mm-hmm. And like, for example, I'm not going to buy a bed online. I know yep. a mattress is a mattress, but uh, I've been through mattresses where I wake up worse than I started. I mean, yep. I would have been better off sleeping standing up. Right? My back <laughs> yeah. ends up killing me. Right. And I've, I've, been, I've gone through other mattresses that I didn't have that problem. Yep. I spent the whole night rolling because it's uncomfortable. So when I go to a mattress, I want to go and I want to see the bed. I want to know what I'm buying. Yep. That's an example, right? Grocery store, it goes back to what you said. I like grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I run out of time and that's when I want to deliver it. And I still don't do it. I still go get it. But, um, or I'll order out. But the point I'm getting at is the fact that I do enjoy that because you see what you're buying. Yep. Right? Like, and then and, and sometimes, I'll, let's face it, groceries a lot of times is impulse buying as well. Right? Like you, oh, absolutely. you go out there to pick up a chicken, you come home with a chicken, uh, peanut butter, bread, <laughs> um, milk. <laughs> <You Yep. know? laughs> so that's just grocery. And that's the fun of it. You know, mm-hmm. like, and that, that, so there's certain things you're not going to. Now, look, the chair I'm sitting on now, I uh, bought that through Amazon. No, I think I bought that. No, I bought. Hmm, where did I get it from? Okay. I first bought a couple of chairs from Amazon. They were both disasters. Yeah. So I sent them back. Um, now, fortunately, I have a large SUV, so they fit in the back of it because they deliver it to you, but they won't pick it up. Mm-hmm. So I'm like sitting there going, well, I got to deliver because I don't fit it in my truck. Or at the time, I didn't have it. My car, I had the car at the time. And I mm-hmm. don't fit in my car. So how do I return it? That like, Or how would I pick it up? That's why I ordered it. So it, it got delivered. Uh, two wrong chairs. Now, fortunately, I switched my SUV at that point. So I got it returned, but I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to the, one of the local stores. I know what I'm getting or order something like I had when I was in my office before. So at least I know what I'm buying instead of trying something new. Yep. I got that one delivered, but again, I also got this one. Del- we were still in closure um, when I got it delivered too. So that was the other problem. And you know what I mean? Cause we uh, here, we've been uh, open and closed pretty much through every wave except for this one. And so it's one of those things, some things were hard to get. And, um, but then again, knowing this experience, I would have ha- held on to my uh, old chair until we were open again. Then when I got out and bought it. So certain furnitures, I'm not going to buy online. Yep. Certain things. Sure. I'll go online. Like my computer, like whenever I buy an Apple device or a computer, the heck do I need the store for? Yep. Right. I mean, I, you know, a computer is a computer. If you know the specs, you know what you're ordering. You're not going to get anything different by going to the store. Yep. So why would I order? Just have it shipped. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. And I'm the same way. Funny story. Actually, I just ordered a pillow online. Uh, I, I, I don't even know why I decided to do it, but I ordered a pillow online and I used it last night. And at like three in the morning, I woke up and I'm like, I hate this thing. This thing's awful. <laughs> so I went back to my old pillow, but I wouldn't have made that mistake if I actually went to a, like a mattress store and, and tried one or two out. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. There, there's always going to be some segment of, of goods that we purchase that are going to need to be uh, done in, uh, in a retail center. And there's also just personal service shops, right? Like haircuts, hairdressers, they're, they're they need operate out of retail space, restaurants. So there's, there's all the things that extend just beyond the companies that s- sell goods. There's, there's companies that sell goods that people are going to want to go and look at. And then there's all the other retailers that they're just service providers as well. So th- there will always be retail. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in that, but it is going to change. Uh, it, it just has no choice. 
I agree with you. Now, I'm going to tell you something, a little personal thing. Now, when we went through closure, the restaurants had the uh, pickup thing and all that. I'll be honest. I don't understand that. Like, I've done it a couple of times because I want to support the local restaurants because, you know what, I don't want them to disappear. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I go to a restaurant, I'm not really going for the food. I mean, really, I can eat at home. Who cares? That's I'm experience. going for the social aspect. Yep. Now, when you're closed down, I got to pick it up to put it in my car and drive it home. Mm -hmm. Seems kind of like ass backwards to me. Yeah. Yeah, you're paying for the experience. And, and restaurant food is is marked up for that experience. Right? Uh, and, and that's part of their business model. They're part of their business models that they want you going in there. They want to have uh, the service element of it and the options and the variety. Uh, there's, there's a reason people do pay a premium for it. If you're paying that same premium to pick up the food and eat it at your house, you're paying a really big premium for uh, only getting a, a, a small portion of that experience. So I, I'm like you, I, I did support a number of restaurants over the past year on, on doing that. If for no other reason, then I can't even imagine how hard it'd be running a restaurant right now. Especially since they have low mark, like, like low markups to be terrible. With. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like a good, good restaurant is like eight to 10% margin. Uh, like if, if it's operating smoothly, like it's, it's not a, it's not a fun business to be in at the best of times and going through something like this. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, uh, struggling restaurateurs all over right now. Oh, for sure. Like even for me, I I've, I've heard, uh, colleagues who've had uh, restaurants and told me they were making five to 6%. I mean, I wouldn't get out of bed for that. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? Like, wow. Because there's so much that can go wrong, and it's okay. not like one of those businesses where you're on five to six percent profit, but it only costs you fifty grand to get in. So it's my, you know, I mean, most of the time, most of these restaurants are getting between five hundred and eight hundred thousand uh, dollar debts to build yeah. this business, and you're going to do that to make five percent, six percent. I mean, like, what does the average restaurant do? Two million a year? That's like one hundred twenty grand a year. You can get a job without that risk. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're in it, you'd love it, and that's why you're in it. Yeah, it's it's more. I'm sure it's the same uh, passion that they have for doing that as we do for real estate. It's just something they love doing, uh, and and I th I think every business owner always hopes things get better, whether they do or whether they don't. You, there's always that hope, uh, and maybe restaurateurs are just are optimistic that things improve at a, at a quicker pace but yeah it's to to the friends you've talked about five or six percent that's common yeah it's like that's that's a common margin if you're operating a really good restaurant you're eight to ten percent and then there's restaurants that are making nothing or losing money so it's it's tough tough business i agree and i it's just crazy to me absolutely crazy but hey you know what it is what it is <laughs> it's better them than me because <laughs> i don't have the stomach for that yeah, agreed <laughs> so but I, I do love the social aspect of it and again you know what i thought i'll be honest when when we closed down at first i thought okay it's not going to be that long they said we're going to close down for a few weeks whatever mm -hmm. right they said two weeks and i said i don't believe that maybe a month yep well it went longer than that but i i didn't think much of it but then I started, you know, then as it goes on and on, you start going, uh-oh. I go, the business I get most of the time was from networking. Yep. So stay home, don't go out, <laughs> but go get business somehow. When you get business by going out. Yeah. So it's it's going, a challenge. Yeah. Like now, ironically, 2020 was my best year yet. Oh, congrats. Thank you. So, you know what I mean? Like, 
you look at that. Here I am. I'm the networker, as I just said. Yeah. Nowhere to go, and I had a phenomenal year. So what do you attribute that to? Um, I got a lot of agent to agent referrals, and then this is the thing, right? So 2020, that business built up. Agent to agent referrals. It became almost 50 percent of my business. Yep. Now I got a couple that were online leads too. Ironically, I didn't think I would. Mm-hmm. So that was a couple of sales. Um, and 2021 started out rough. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, I went the first three months with, you know what I mean? I'm sitting there going, okay, well, that luck of 2020 is gone. No, sorry. I lied. I lied. I got my story mixed. I had carry over. Like I got no new business in the first three months, yep. but I had carry over from 2020. Mm-hmm. But even those carryovers flopped and it's not their fault. I mean, we, you know, you, I'm sure you know the market's been bananas everywhere. Doesn't matter yep. where in the world you are, it's been bananas. And bidding wars are not limited to Toronto. Mm-hmm. So I had one clientele and it was one client, not clientele, client, as an example, who actually won a bid in December hmm. and even won with an inspection clause. But the inspection went bad. So that deal didn't go through, but then we went through seven more offers Wow! that went bad to the point they just cut out and said, forget it. Hmm. So I lost that there. And that happened through four different people. Some of them didn't even offer. They just looked around and said, prices are mad. I'm waiting. You haven't even tried. We're not confident. Okay. What do you say, right? Like you try to explain, give them the data, but they just decide they don't want to do it anymore. They don't want to do it. So I lost five deals that were carryovers from 2020 just in the month of January. That had to hurt. Absolutely. Especially (laughs) again, the four that didn't even try or, you know, gave up after two, it hurts, but you can live with, but when you had a winning deal and it went sour, then that happens. That's like twice the sting. Yeah. So, and I, I could see the, a, a restaurant guy listening to this and saying, ha, I don't want to have your life. You're saying you, you don't want to be a restaurateur. I don't want to be a realtor. <laughs> that hurts. I, I feel for you. Yeah. And then on top of that, I just went silent till about the end of March. And I was lucky that at the end of March, things started to pick up, but it picked up very slowly. Yep. And like even March, April, May, it was one of those that I made enough to cover bills. Mm-hmm. Not really making anything. Yep. Believe it or not, it was about end of April, beginning of May. That did the bulk of my business this year, and then September. Well, good to hear it recovered for you at least. Oh, it did, but I mean, it looked bad at the beginning, and now, yeah. Again, we got three months to go. October, November, December. Yeah, we got three months to go, and I could tie last year with about four deals. Well, good for you. So. Will I do it or not? We'll see. Fingers crossed for you. Yeah, because it's starting to get crazy again with uh, and bids are starting to ramp up. Yep. But still, I still had a good year. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if 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 I had zero more deals, this would be my second best year. Good for you. So, but I mean, it's crazy how things work. It is. It's a, well, it's a real estate roller coaster, right? You just, uh, you, you never know where, where you are at any given point on the roller coaster. You just need to stay buckled in. It's so true. 
Now, let me ask you, what was your biggest win? Like when you first started, I mean, we all have expectations coming in. Yep. But what was your biggest win that when you got it, you're like, yes, I'm going to make it. I'm okay. Great question. I, I don't know if I would point to any one in particular other than there's a number of defining points uh, in my career. I got my CCIM designation uh, after a couple of years, uh, and that that was a good feather in the cap. Uh, I got my SIOR designation a few years ago. That, that one felt good. Becoming a partner in 2014 was good because then you can you have that much more credibility when you're talking to, to clients that you're a partner in a firm that's been around since 1966. Uh, there's there's a series of, of deals that I've done along the way. Uh, there's clients that I've that I've taken on. Uh, like what one client I've had for about 10 years uh, now accounts for a good portion of my business. Uh, every single year, there's they own a number of properties and it just keeps turning over. I've had I've worked with them now for 10 years or so getting that one at the beginning was huge there's some a few standalone deals that i did which were were only one deal and i, I haven't worked with the client again but they were big deals at the time uh so yeah there, there there's a series of, of of wins along the way that i don't think i'd be here if if it wasn't for all of those wins that makes sense actually so clearly you're very good at uh, repeat business I, I focus a lot on that. Yeah. Do you have a CRM or uh, how do you uh, keep track of everything? I do. Yeah. So we repurposed one called Zoho, uh, which is more of a very generic CRM for sales in general, but we modified it to be specific to commercial real estate. So it, it I track everything diligently. Every tour that I do, every, every call that I get, every lead that comes in, I either track it back to a, a single entrance uh, into the CRM as, as as somebody going in as their own file or gets tracked to a property. So if someone calls off the property that I have listed, I'll enter that in there. So I've got a running uh, tally of every piece of activity that's happened on there. Uh, I, I start my day and end my day with the CRM though. That's amazing. I mean, I have a CRM as well. I'm not as diligent with it as I, as you are. I'm getting better with it and I do, it is part of my system. I just think I can improve with it. Yeah, it, it takes time uh, because you really have to form a habit with it because it's not something we are trained to do, right? That's the, when you were getting your license uh, or, or going through school, we didn't get taught how to use a CRM or even how to manage that much data. Uh, so it's really something you just need to implement into your workflow. And and once it becomes a habit, then then you become actually really reliant on it to a point that if I don't have an internet connection, I'm, I'm screwed because everything is is in this phantom cloud. Very true. Now, how often do you keep in touch with your client? Like, I mean, residential, well, for me, I, for example, I reach out to every client roughly, roughly every 90 days. Yep. Yeah. A little, little different in our, our business. Like my, my one client that I mentioned, I, I talk to him every day, uh, because we were, chances are we've got some deal going on or there's just uh there's an update in the portfolio or someone's considering moving i, I talk to them every day uh and then there's clients that i might talk to once a quarter uh if they're especially if they don't have anything active ongoing i'd like like you john i try to keep a very uh, active social media profile and and one of the benefits that i think that that does is it it creates that top of mind awareness so that i'm hoping that that people that are connected to my network, just see some of the stuff that I'm doing, uh, just trying to 
provide some information, trying to provide some value without being salesy, uh, but just trying to do that on social media, whether it's LinkedIn or YouTube or wherever. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I kind of hope that that is a, a touch point in itself uh, so that I don't have to specifically talk to every single person every every week or every month or whatever interval it is. So I, I found social media to be productive on on that. Uh, but it really depends. If it, like my really good clients, I talk to them at least once a week. That makes sense. I get it. Now, don't get me wrong. If we're including social, we're including everything else. I talk to them a lot more often, but I make a point of calling or texting yep. every 90 days. Yeah. But, and you, you probably just have a lot of clients too, right? Like your, your volume is, is a lot bigger. Whereas my top five or six clients account for like a good percentage of my business. That's true. That's true. Like if I go through my list, and I call even, uh, we'll say, three to five people a day. Mm -hmm. It takes me more than 30 days to get through everybody. Wow, that's crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> That's so, crazy. Yeah, that's that's the thing, right? So like even with the industry I'm in, you're not going to get a lot of people that are going to be repeat uh, businesses. And mm -hmm. I don't mean um, that they don't use you ever again. Um, like industrial, people expand, so they're constantly over and over and over ours is they say the average is is every seven years for the same client yep what ends up happening is some people move every two years so you hear that person three times in seven years and then you got somebody who doesn't move for 20 years but you mm -hmm. do the average they say average person buys every seven years so i have one client uh who who owns a few buildings and i just did the 42nd deal with him 42nd deal with with him just because it's constant turnover in his properties and those, those aren't big deals by any means it's a lot of small warehouse bays but 42 of them uh so like, wow. can you imagine selling one client 42 different houses wow that's crazy so yeah like um I, that is kind of crazy but that's pretty good though i mean it's uh, you know constant flow kind of makes you feel at ease absolutely so, I mean, like one thing I want to get into with investors is multiplexes. So mm -hmm. that's considered commercial, but that's about the only commercial I understand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good that you're aware of that because a lot of people think that they can just dip their toes into it. Uh, and it's, it is a very complex business. I've, I've been doing it for, for a long time now, and I still find that I need to learn things myself. So for someone that has no knowledge uh, in the industry to to try and come in and do an industrial deal, there's there's just so much complexity to it that people, they don't even know what they don't know. Uh, but you having a, a really solid background in residential, that leads itself pretty naturally to do like a fourplex or a tenplex or, or work in that space. But uh, I, I, would, I would encourage anyone that listening that that is considering getting into it just realize that it is it's a process it's it's a never-ending process of having to learn as much as you can to, to go back to that earlier point we made about acting in the best interest of your client 100 percent, right so again that's what i know myself like it goes to it goes to i always use this example and this is why i don't understand commercial i understand the principles but it makes no sense to me logically i can't wrap my head around it so that's why I choose that if it's commercial, I'm going to refer it out. I don't want to know because you take a Starbucks and I'm going to use bullcrap numbers, but I think you'll agree with what I'm saying here. You take a Starbucks and you place it on a fifth, I will say even a hundred by 150 square foot lot. Yep. And then you put a house on the same lot. The house might sell for a million. That Starbucks will sell for 5 million. And I, it's just as an example, right? Like, and I mean, it's the same damn thing. It's just a square building. On a damn lot. Why is one worth more? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you get into cap rates, business potential, and that adds to that. Now, I understand the concept of it, but it still doesn't logically make sense in my head. So I figured if I can't figure it out, how can I sell it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. <laughs> great point. So, yeah, I agree with that 100%. You know, know your lane. Be best in your lane. Mm-hmm. I agree. I have a full agreement. That That's why I would never try to sell a house. I just don't know that market nearly as well as experts like you. Makes sense. So what would, what advice would you have for uh, anyone coming into the market and like they want to get their license, they're interested in uh, getting into commercial. They have no interest in uh, residential. Yeah. A, cu- a couple points come to mind. First is that I would say, be prepared for a couple years of not making very much money, which we talked about already. Just have some plan in place. Uh, talk to a number of different brokerages when you're getting into it and and get an estimate on what their expectations are for how much you can earn, whether you're coming in as an assistant or whether you're coming in on directly on your own and you've got to eat what you kill, just have a pretty good idea of what you're going to be earning and budget for that. And just be patient that it could take, could take a couple of years to do it. And then probably even more important than that is I would say, make sure you have a passion for doing this. And and I know that that's impossible to define or quantify, but you should be getting up every day, excited to go to work and do all the, the little small things that, that are imperative to succeed in this business. And you should be excited about that. This is a really tough business uh, at, at, at the best of times. And the only way to, to succeed in this business, in my mind, is to just have an unwavering passion to want to succeed you just you're so focused and dedicated and you see that that goal line some distance out uh, out and you just want to run as fast and as hard as you can until you get there i think that 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 is a defining trait of people that are very successful in this business so there's some overlap between those two points one you got to be patient to get there but you also need to be working as aggressively as you can and in my experience the only people that can work that aggressively are the ones that are just so passionate about it wow you know that's like a mic drop moment (laughs) honestly that was probably one of the best answers i've gotten oh well yeah thanks i i I do believe that i i hope that doesn't come across as just a generic soundbite because i I really do believe that wholeheartedly no no that was that was great you know i mean like you know what it is what what wowed me is the level of detail you got into Right, which is amazing because you could have just said, be patient, do whatever, right? And then moved on. But it's like you got right into detail. It was almost like a little action plan, which is mm-hmm. awesome. That is amazing. Thanks. So final question, where do people find you? So I started a YouTube channel about a year ago. Uh, as you could tell, I'm very passionate about talking about industrial real estate. So I started a YouTube channel about a year ago where I just talk about uh, different facets of the business, try to give people both a high level overview as well as more detailed information. So if they just search my name, uh, Chad Griffiths on YouTube or just search industrial real estate, I'm the only person that's putting out regular content on the topic. And I'd love if you checked out a video and consider subscribing. Awesome. Thank you very much. I want to, you know, I'm uh, very honored that you were on the podcast. Well, those are fantastic questions, John. I, I could tell you put a lot of thought into them and you're, you're a very natural podcast host. So, uh, honor of mine to be on your show. Thank you.